Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Rave podcast. Got something a bit special today. As part of a series that I'm doing on uh, near-death experiences, we have a wonderful guest here today who's going to share some of those experiences with us. So really, really excited about this opportunity. Um, but right off the bat, for anyone that might be potentially uncomfortable with some of the things we might be discussing today, this is a warning just ahead of time. Uh, we will be talking about some some intense stuff, some pretty serious stuff. Um, so it's just a warning now, just in case maybe it's not something you're comfortable with or you know, you've got some concerns there, maybe skip this one or maybe just proceed with caution. Thank you. So today's guest is Gaio Chingon. Did I get that right? Yes, you got it. Yeah, I'm so happy. It's not like I did, I asked for his name off camera or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so I'm going to approach this one a little bit differently because obviously I, I, to give people some context, I made a post in Reddit. Reddit is brilliant, by the way, for any podcasters out there, make sure you use Reddit. It's a fantastic resource. I've had some really, really amazing guests such as Gaio and it's just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, I reached out when, when I got to like episode 200 of my show, originally I was going to do an episode and I did for episode 200, I did an episode on life after death. And I thought about just including near death experiences as part of that, but then it became a topic much bigger than I expected. And specifically in the area of near death experiences, you know, and I had a lot of research that I had into that episode. I've not actually done that episode just yet, but that's coming. Um, and so I started having loads of people reach out to me about this wanting to share their stories and i'm like let's do it um and so i've kind of like thrown the script a little bit i've got obviously questions for you and, and sort of going to run down with all the different experiences that you've had and stuff and, and kind of run through them but i guess the one of the wider kind of considerations with this topic is to kind of understand two things i suppose one how does this kind of shape a person's life after they've experienced these things and two where does that leave us as far as considering what comes next what comes after death those are the kind of two things i'm trying to like i suppose answer with this the answer will never come but we can ponder it and ask many questions and go on a bit of a journey so gaio you have had multiple near-death experiences which <laughs> I just, oh my gosh. Um, do you think there's like a deeper meaning for this? Before we sort of go into specifics, I just wanted to know like your kind of opinion on this because you've had all these different things happen to you. Where do you sit on that? Do you think there's like a deeper spiritual meaning to it? Do you think it's just coincidence, bad luck, good luck? What do you think? Oh man, that's, you know, that's something I, I think about probably once a month, at least once a year, but usually it falls about once a month. Like, why am I here? That the existential question, right? But, uh, you know, for, well, when we'll get into it later, a lot of your listeners might realize how the fuck is this guy still alive? Because that was my the, thought, <laughs> you know, how did I survive? Like technically, you know, I should have died at uh, about age four or five. Like that's should have when, when I died my first time. Um, and so it, there's a lot of existential stuff. I even, even pushed me to uh, go to college, become a pastor or a priest, you know, depending on what religion you are and just have a deeper understanding of the um, 
Abrahamic God and all these kind of things. So it's led me to be more introspective and find more answers. But of course, I don't think we're ever going to find the answers more of a personal meaning for you. And so the way I move in life is a lot different than most of my peers or even just people in general do, I think. <clears throat> Let's run it back to what you just mentioned there. So your first experience at age four. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty profound. Like, you know, you think about the type of things you're expected to go through as a child. And yeah, we all have different childhoods. I remember seeing some, some crazy stuff too and experiencing some crazy things. Um, what happened to you at that age? Like what, what was the first kind of experience like? So my mother was a uh, cleaning lady and she was cleaning the house for uh, a well-to-do woman, a doctor. And if I remember piecing things together correctly, she was actually the psychiatrist or psychologist that was treating me or seeing me when my parents were going through their divorce. Oh, wow. And so back then we're talking the eighties, early eighties, uh, my mother didn't find a babysitter. So fuck it. We're just going to take this kid to work. And you know, of course, she's trying to clean the house and I'm making a mess. So she kicked me out of the house. I'm in the backyard. This uh, house or this well-to-do neighborhood had a little river creek in the back of it. Each house had their own little small pier. I'm standing at the edge of the pier, just kind of looking at this scourge of mosquitoes, just kind of hovering or shimmering over the water. And through uh, regression therapy, through hypnosis and other things, I've been able to remember a little more details. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and so... I distinctly remember feeling pushed, but I was the only person on that pier on that side. Uh, there was about three houses down. I saw what at then I would call big kids, but they were teenagers. But I saw these big kids, uh, two piers down, and they're you know laughing and playing, and uh, not a little kayak, but a little canoe, and just playing around in the water. And I fall in. I feel or I felt that I was pushed into the water. I'm drowning, uh, panicking, but I did know how to swim at that point. Uh, I was swimming as a kid, swimming pools, lakes, rivers, uh, beaches. Like every summer I would spend in Mexico. So every summer I'd go to the beach because my grandmother lived so close to it. So it, I'd spend most of my summer working on my tan and just swimming. So it's not that I didn't know how to swim. Just for some reason I got caught off guard in the water, drowning. And I have a sense of a memory, but also kind of in the regression. So the lines kind of get blurred between what was the experience and what was a memory and then what's kind of like filled in with the gaps but what i recall is hearing a voice like a, a a deep man's voice saying calm breathe climb and basically give me instructions to not panic reach for the water like get out of the water enough to take a good breath and then climb out of the pier i go inside and my mother yells at me what the fuck are you doing getting all dirty in spanish what the fuck are you doing to get all dirty and messy, bringing this mess inside the house? Go back outside. And in that moment, that, made, that was like a defining moment for me in that here I am, a scared child, terrified for my life, screaming, mommy, mommy, help me in the water. And she's yelling at me, go behave, go be clean. And so in me, it kind of set this uh, uh, mantra, motto, moral code that I have to take care of myself because my mommy's not going to do it for me. Of course, she's going to feed me and clothe me, but I have to fend my, for myself in the real world. If something happens to me, no one's going to take care of me but me. And so that was like my first experience and my first takeaway from that. Wow. Um, <clears throat> okay. Would you say that that was 
an understanding that you kind of came to in the in the years subsequent to that like as you pondered this experience or was that something you kind of realized later on when other things would happen you look back and you're like okay this is uh in the moment i remember feeling angry and and scared like angry that my mother didn't protect me and scared that my mother wouldn't protect me in, in that sense so it's, it's kind of so there was a lot of childlike ideas so there weren't fully formed thoughts or, or sentences that I could put to it, just like the feelings that I had. And of course, and those, those breed other things or resentment and kind of grow into kind of like the, the Star Wars thing of, you know, fear turns into hate, turns into anger and all that other things. So it was kind of like that that was kind of built inside. And it wasn't until many years later on a different topic that made me be more introspective and try to unravel those feelings, unravel those things. But I do know that from then I had that seed. I was like, okay, I have to take care of myself. And that wasn't a more fully formed idea until I was in my teens. But even then in my teens, I had this um, thought or idea, I'm never going to see 20 because of other near-death experiences. And because in the 90s, I was seeing um, a lot of gang violence and seeing people die in front of me in, in drive-bys and being kind of in the middle of drive-by shootings so which are other near-death experiences yeah i um when i when i saw this i i was really kind of blown away and fascinated as well because i've always wanted to talk to someone who has been in that experience to really understand what that was like and more specifically from the day-to-day because you know you hear about it in the media you see this but like you never necessarily kind of get to grips with like how a person feels the human being every single day living this so before we sort of talk through those experiences specifically like what was the kind of day-to-day like in that time period as far as how you felt you know say walking down your street going to work uh, whatever the case may be so of course going to school some days i'd walk some days i take the bus some days my mom would take me just kind of a scheduling thing <clears throat> and so the only way i can relate it is if you could take away the uh, the gun violence in the sense of the mass shootings, like forget that there are mass shootings because the, these did not exist until after I graduated high school. Um, so just pretend for a moment that that has never happened, never will happen, never can happen. The problem is, I don't know if you've seen the TikTok video or some viral video where this kid is beating the crap out of a teacher because supposedly she stole his uh, Nintendo Switch or whatever. So that kind of thing could happen to anyone at any time in certain schools because it had to be kind of the ghetto type schools, the schools that were lower income. Um, so in the richer well-to-do neighborhoods, this is nothing that wouldn't happen unless a student happened to transfer into there and eventually he'd get kicked out because he'd be the only bad seed in the school. But in the school I went to, it wasn't that it would happen to anyone at any time because the honor roll students kind of were on their own. They didn't you know, have to deal with this kind of thing. I was kind of the bad kid that I was in on a roll, but I would still go hang out with the gangsters and, and the other um, bad kids, air quotes, just to, um, because I didn't feel like I fit in with the honor roll students. I wasn't a nerd. I just was able to retain information. Well, that's the only reason I was in honor roll because I could uh, pass tests because, you know, I could remember things from two weeks ago, which didn't make sense to me that the kids couldn't. But anyways, um, so I'd hang out with these other kids because they seemed cool because they were fun because they were doing things that I wanted to do because I lived on a dead end street. So my sphere of knowledge or the things that I got to learn were from these other kids because it was I was one of the older kids on my street. 
And the younger kids looked to me for information and trying to learn things because we didn't have the internet back then. We couldn't right. like, hey, what's yeah. um, whatever, what's going on in Rome or what is uh, whatever random thing you wanted to know about, you know, you had to ask someone and if they didn't know, well, then you had to go to a encyclopedia. That's boring. That's nerdy. So who's going to do that? So then, you know, a lot of false information would get passed around. <clears throat> so it's not, it wasn't as scary as the media portrayed it to be, but it could be to that level of violence. And there's always some type of fight at least twice a month, um, you know, where some kid gets jumped, either they're getting jumped into the gang to prove that they're, you know, be able to handle a fight or a big gang fight because somebody slapped somebody's girlfriend and then it became a big thing. And then now the whole school's going to rumble or most of the school's going to rumble the bad element. So that was kind of the, the thing that would go on. And then it would escalate from there where, Oh, someone got their ass kicked. Well, now they're mad about it. So now they're going to get shot at or have a drive-by. So it's either an element, mostly there were drug elements that would cause the drive-bys. And the other part of it would be um, being slighted or being uh, disrespected. Disrespect was a big thing or respect was a big thing within the community of, you know, you're going to respect me. I'm not going to force you to, but you're not going to disrespect me. And that was more of any small slights that you would see like in uh, gang movies or sorry, um, prison movies uh, where big fights would break out. So kind of like that, but not that level of threat, not um, with the intent of murder. Most of the time, the drive-bys were more of to scare people into like behaving, but people would end up dying sometimes. Yeah. This is what I've always wondered about, like your thoughts on, on maybe just kind of like how media at the time, so specifically movies and such portrayed that time period from the gang culture perspective and also subsequent movies thereafter like what do you think they've done a bad job are they misrepresenting it is it the classic hollywood over the top or is it spot on sometimes i think it's kind of spot on the only thing is they focus on it so much so it seemed like a bigger problem than it was or a more frequent problem okay. um so it, it kind of with the idea of toxic masculinity yes toxic masculinity is an issue but because we see and hear about it social media, we think every man out there has toxic masculinity traits. Whereas, no, it's a small subset, but we just talk about it so much, it just seems like a bigger deal. So kind of the same idea with the gang violence and the drive-bys. Yes, it happened. Yes, it was a problem. And it was a problem in bigger cities like in Houston, where I'm from. But uh, the bigger one would be LA, sometimes Phoenix and other major cities. But the way news made it seem like, oh, every city, this could happen anywhere. Your kid is probably going to get murdered tomorrow if you don't keep them inside kind of the similar thing with the whole satanic panic in the eighties. So, mm. you know, every kind of thing just kind of evolves because of course we didn't have the internet to have better access to real world media, real world news. So when you were dealing with this, because obviously it sounds to me like maybe this is something that you were kind of drafted into, like, would that be accurate to say that's you sort of grew up with it and you fell into it as opposed to like, like it's a conscious decision. Like I want to. Oh yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. It was kind of like, um, just being associated with it. And it was by choice that I chose to hang out with these guys because I thought they were cool because, you know, they had all the girls, the girls are always attracted to them because they were the bad boy type. And so it wasn't conscious and it wasn't drafting. It was just more of just being in the circle because I never joined. I was never asked to join. I never, pushed or figured out what I had to do to, I mean, I knew what I would have to do if I wanted to join, but I never went through that uh, process or effort because I was also, I was more terrified of my mother 
picking me up from jail. Because if I ever went to jail, I definitely would have been dead that day. Like there's no, whatever. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Um, well, this, this is, this makes it even more interesting because it's like you, you were able to kind of evade being part of that. But as you mentioned in, in the, our emails to each other sort of beforehand, you were the target of multiple drive-bys. Now, was this because of association? You They just assumed, well, we see this guy as part of this group, so he must be, or as it is it as you said before, just, oh, if we scare this guy, then he'll scare the others, and then we'll get what we want. Um, so this kind of branches off into my intercourse addiction. Um, okay. Of course, I wasn't having sex then. Back then, I was just trying to get it in. I didn't know. I was, I was, so again, I was terrified of my mother. Uh, a little backtracking. Uh, my mother was also a loan shark among many things. And there was a guy, I remember her bringing me along because I went from five foot three to six feet in like nine months. Like I shot up uh, in my height. And um, so she brought me along as her quote unquote muscle. And uh, this guy interrupted her, like, you know, basically disrespecting her. And she just calmly grabs a, a steak knife off one of the tables at the restaurant that this guy owned stabbed him in the forearm and told him I wasn't done talking and continued her monologue and then told him, go get me my money. And he was, you know, oh, I only have like 50 bucks or whatever it was. But th- I remember my mother distinctly stabbing a man through the arm and pinning it almost uh, into the table. Uh, and so that's where my fear of my mother came from. Like when she said, this is how things are going to be, right. that's how things were going to be. Um, Man, you might get it. I see. I thought like, oh, you know, naively, like just, just worried about being shouted at. Now you were like, for real, no, like, you need to be scared of this. No. Woman. <laughs> yes. Uh, my, my stepfather hit her one time and he said, you should have killed me. And he was like, well, no, no I'm not going to kill. I'm not going to go to jail, whatever. And like every night that he came home late, she beat him with the pan. As soon as he walked in, she'd beat the shit out of him and knock him out, put him on the floor when he came home drunk. And she goes, you're never going to hit me again. So you can get, you can either keep drinking if you want, and you're going to wake up on the floor here, or you can get divorced. I don't care, but you're never going to put your hands on me. And so, yeah, my mother was, do not fuck with her. Um, So when my mother realized that I was interested in girls and, you know, chasing after them and trying to figure out what to do with them, because again, no internet, I just knew I wanted to do something with them. I just didn't know what. So my mother gave me the talk about the birds and the bees. I'm like, ah, okay, that's what I want to do with them. That's what I'm trying to do. I didn't know what I'm trying to do. I just have these hormones, right? Right, yeah. And so, um, and then she kind of realized her screw up that she kind of gave me the the, the roadmap or the, the master plan of what to do, right? <laughs> and she goes, okay, listen, I'm responsible for you, not your dick. So if some little girl loves you enough to open up her legs, that little slut better love you enough to go move in with her because I'm not raising your kid. And I'm like, well, shit. Now I can't have any fun because, you know, I um, can't have sex with them because I'm going to get them pregnant because, you know, that's what happens. You're going to get them pregnant the first time. Or I hear some random story that uh, Jose and Maria hooked up one time. They used a condom. And now they're pregnant. And then come to find out years later, no, they'd been hooking up a bunch of times, got tired of using the condom, and then she got pregnant. But the, the rumor mill one time with the condom and now she's pregnant. And again, being the only kid or one of the older kids on a dead end street, I didn't know what oral sex was. I don't know what that head was slang for it. And so I would often turn down, Hey, you want some head? And whatever the reason I thought it was something bad or it was going to be painful. So I turned it down from girls until one girl finally said, Hey, can I suck your dick? I was like, Oh yes, you can do that. Let's give that a try. <laughs> right. And so then these drive-by things kind of stemmed from me 
hooking up with all these girls because eventually one of these girls or somebody's cousin or somebody's uh, sister or somebody's ex-girlfriend or somebody's oh, current right. girlfriend. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then that's disrespect, disrespecting these guys uh, that I was taking their girlfriend from them. So then some of the warning shots that I got were because of that. Um, and then the other ones, because I associated with these guys. So then on the other side of it, I would associate with some of these guys. I would draw their, because um, I was also good at trying. <clears throat> so I draw their names in old English letters or script or whatever, um, you know, whatever gangster nickname with Susie or Maria or whatever. And then they'd pass it off to their girl and they'd be, oh, you did this for me. It's so sweet. So then I kind of had some protection from a few guys because I would make them look good. And so it was all about building up their respect. So on one hand, disrespecting the girls or disrespecting a relative or a girlfriend of a guy got me shot at. And then on the other hand, whenever some other guys wanted to jump me because they weren't at the level to be able to um, order a drive-by or to be able to, or too scared to do a drive-by themselves, then they would try to jump me. And on two occasions, I kind of got saved because one of the guys that was in the group to jump me recognized me and said, okay, no, you can punch them, but you're not going to use any weapons like bats, sticks, whatever. So, you know, there was all these little different things that kind of came together that technically kept me alive because I was friendly or on friendly terms with some of these gangsters. <clears throat> in any of the drive-by situations, was there ever an instance where maybe they tried to like shoot when you were outside like your house or something like that? And then no, it was always around the school. Um, wow. Okay. And I think it was just for timing. I, I don't know either that or they just t- couldn't take the effort. Because again, no internet. So you can't search, hey, where does Gayo Chingon live? No, <laughs> right, yeah. or you can't look at social media to figure out, oh, there's this tree over there and there, he's always by this Walgreens or by this grocery store or whatever. So he's probably in this neighborhood. So it was harder to do tracking or stalking back then unless he just followed someone home. And again, because my schedule is always so different that I would either walk home, take a bus or get a ride. And sometimes I get a ride to a friend's house and then walk home or get a friend's to a girl's house, spend the night. And then come home because my mother was out of town or whatever. So there wasn't any way someone could consistently be able to say, oh, yeah, this is a house he goes to every day. When these situations would occur, um, I feel sort of silly asking this, but at the same time, I'm curious. How did the school approach that? Did they get involved? I mean, I'm sure they were very aware that this was gang related activity. But like, was there an active effort on their part? see working with the police or trying to at least ensure student safety or were they just hands off um i don't remember the details i just do know that we started having police officers in our school right and then eventually i want to say we started having school district police officers so here in the u.s you know each school district or school within a city is broken up into a district or unified district or unified area but essentially it's um, a bunch of schools that fall under the umbrella of the city and uh, eventually there was police department or police officers that were uh, assigned to the dep- to the district. And then eventually the school district had their own police officers. And um, then there's studies that say, well, because we have these police officers, that's why we have these mass shootings, because where normally the students would just attack each other. Now, because they know there's a police officer, now they have to bring a weapon, not for the kid that they're going to shoot, but be able to defend themselves against a police officer. So anyways, that's that's. Tangential. But anyways, um, we started having, or I started seeing police officers in our schools when I was in middle school versus just, you know, a cop coming by once or twice a school. You're like, hey, you know, don't do drugs, kids, and come on over and, you know, be one of the good guys, you know, just like kind of pep talk cops showing up. 
versus them being around the school and patrolling and walking the school itself. How did that make you feel as a kid? Did that make you feel any safer? Was it maybe, did it make it feel worse? Like, what was that experience like for you? For me personally, it was just pissed me off because there was another set of eyes that would catch me skipping, trying to hook up <laughs> or finger bang this girl. So it, back then, my, I was on a one track mind trying to get it in. So it was just skipping class. And I, right. that was funny because I would skip class, but I wouldn't skip school. So I'd go to school and skip random classes, but I'd never had the balls to go to school and then go to someone else's house and then come go home from there. Just, I never know. I didn't know I never did it because there was a lot of skip parties that I got invited to, but anyways. Thanks. Uh, let's, let's bring it back to the, uh, the drive-bys for a second. Um, so obviously you said that some of the, this was included in what you sent to me about near death experiences. So I'm guessing one of these at one point was a bit more serious. Could you walk us through that experience and sort of just give us like a bit of a timeline, what it was like for you. And, and then we'll get sort of, we'll go, we'll go from there. Um, I want to say I was in the eighth grade, uh, okay. which would be the last year of uh, middle school here in the U S or at least in uh, Houston. Anyways, I remember that I was kind of always on edge because I was messing around or kissing all these random girls or fingering them or whatever. And I remember I was on it, always on edge because I never knew who they might be related to or who I might get in trouble with. Um, and so one drive-by that sticks out in particular, I don't know if I was a target of it or what was the purpose of it. I never really found out. I do know that there was something that moment, that day, uh, just before it happened, uh, my shoelace was untied. And I remember I was walking around the corner to the front of the school to go walk towards the um, convenience store that everybody would go to. And I remember the, the, the strap just kind of slapping my other foot and didn't trip, didn't fall. And for whatever reason, something told me, stop and tie your shoe. It, it, was, it wasn't a voice. It was just something, just stop now, tie your shoe. And when I bent over to tie my shoe, that's when I remember hearing the shoot shots ring out. I don't know if it was the instant I got down or shortly after, but I remember that as I'm tying my shoe, I look up and I see a kid probably two meters in front of me fall down. Um, after the fact, I find out he got shot. And um, I don't remember if he died, but I do remember seeing someone getting shot just shortly in front of me, you know, less than 10 feet away. And... Uh, you know, that just kind of froze me because I was frozen in that motion of being kneeling over, tying my shoe and just looking at it. And I didn't want to look at the car because it, in my mind, it was something like, if I look at the car, I'm going to be a target and they're going to shoot at me. Of course, they're driving forward. So they'd already passed me. Um, and uh, most of the time when shooting from the car, you're shooting from uh, more or less than a 90 degree angle. So from your arm straight out to forward. So reaching behind is not what they usually do but as a kid it just was in my mind if i look up or if i look at the car i'm going to be a witness and they're going to try to get rid of me right but by then you know the car had already passed by so it's just kind of frozen in this mantra don't look at the car don't look at the street just keep your eyes on this kid and i'm seeing the blood kind of it wasn't pulling fast but as you could see blood was like pulling around the shirt wherever he was shot at uh because another thing that they were doing to deal with the uh, gang violence or the gang issues is when we started having to wear uniforms, starting having to wear khaki pants and white t-shirts or white polos. And so of course you're going to see blood seep through on those colors. So. Is this also to stop 
kids from accidentally wearing gang colors or something like that? Or was that just, it, it, that might've been a consequence. I just right. do remember that they were trying to keep gangs from trying to show their colors or wear their colors. So if everybody right. dresses the same, then they can't show who they're with. Of course they figure out their own way to do it by sagging their pants or wearing baggy or clothes or whatever. But, um, that's like, uh, above my pay grade, especially at the time. <clears throat> this is the second time so far that you've mentioned hearing a voice, something like that. To me, it sounds like one or two things, either your intuition or maybe something, hey, who knows, God, spiritual voice. What for you, what do you think that is? Do you, did, did you take that as it's just me, <sighs> something higher than me? Like, How would you take it? I... I would say it'd be a guardian angel or guardian angel type entity um, because I don't want to ascribe it to that, to the Abrahamic God and just say, oh yeah, that's the one definitive thing because there've been other situations, some paranormal things that I've uh, seen and experienced that make it seem like I am attractive to something that's out there, something that we can't see. Um, here recently, or actually during COVID, uh, when I was starting my podcast, I uh, had made a couple of friends and was talking about supernatural things. And a uh, short story, my father told me when I was a kid, or my father told me when I was a young adult, that when I was a three or four-year-old, I was told him that I was talking to my grandfather. He thought I was talking about my step-grandfather. And when I told him what they were wearing and who it was, he realized I was talking about his father, who had passed away before he even met my mother. And... uh so that's that conversation. I don't recall. I just told him things. He said, I told him things that uh, only his father and him would know and communicate some things to him that he was proud of him and other things like that. Um, what I do remember later that kind of confirms that is I was uh, five ish, five or six. I was visiting my father and he took me to see my aunt because by that point my parents were divorced. And I'd asked one of my aunts if she could give me a pickle on a fork so I couldn't get my fingers sticky. Now, what child gives a shit about their fingers getting sticky? Apparently, my grandfather, he had an issue with having any greasy fingers or sticky fingers. He, he just hated that sensation. And so, me saying that triggered my aunt to shake me. Like, where did you learn this? Who told you this? Blah, blah, blah. And she had already known that I was talking or had spoken with my grandfather. And she wanted to, like, force me to communicate with him because she had questions. So, she wanted me to be her medium. And I remember that instance of being kind of like scolded, yelled at, and shaken for that. Uh, and sharing that with someone on a paranormal podcast, she was clairvoyant. And she told me, look, stop, listen, someone's talking to me and telling me that they want to talk to you. So you have people that are around you that want to talk to you, want to communicate with you and be careful of who you ask to help you open up your third eye. Because that was a conversation is how to open up my third eye, how to have the conversation with others or other things. And she had warned me, if you want to do it, go ahead, but be careful because there are things you have people that want to talk to you, but you have something that's kind of malevolent that has bad intentions. So it's kind of just a bunch of things in and around my life that make me wonder, okay, there is stuff out there, but what is it? And I want to know, but I also don't want to know. If I understood this correctly, that's something you've done. You've opened up that doorway at some point in your life. I had it open as a child, as I understand it, and it kind of closed off later. Okay. And now I, I want to open it. I've been trying to figure out a way to expand it with uh, mushrooms, with LSD and things like that, 
to try to have it permanently open to be able to better commune and communicate whatever's out there for advice and trying to figure out, okay, why am I here? Why am I still alive? Because there have been all these instances where I shouldn't have survived. Okay, four years old, maybe that makes sense. But a head-on collision with an 18-wheeler on a motorcycle with no helmet? Walk us through that. Because the details I have here is, yeah, 18-wheeler, 45 miles an hour, no helmet. Let's just... I'll tell you what, let's start somewhere interesting. Let's in the run-up to that. Because what I find is really interesting about these days, more often than not, and, you, and you've given us some context with other stories there about how there's little things here and there. Did anything about that day feel off to you before that happened? Was there anything unusual or was it just a standard day? Um... So yeah, that day, uh, I stuck out of work early. Um, and I forgot what I wanted to leave work early for. I don't know if it was to go see a movie or if it was to, you know, go do something else. Um, I just know that I was trying to sneak out of work early that whole day. But at the same time that day, I had this feeling like not today, not today. It was just kind of, and it wasn't a voice. It was just a feeling. What? Like I should go back to work or I should not do this kind of thing it was more of like um don't like it it, right. it wasn't even a voice it was just i think you know what how you know i could probably tell my my boss that um i got a doctor's appointment yeah i should tell him right now because that way it doesn't seem like i'm trying to sneak out early i can tell him now and as soon as i finished that thought it wasn't my own voice it was just don't like it, it, it's, it's hard to or like a, a sensation of like a pushback of, of an internal feeling of hand on my chest and like, no, don't kind of, and to, it's difficult to, to verbalize because the one near death experience where I quote unquote saw something when I was out, it, it, it's two things that don't make sense at the same time that was going on. And, and that's the only way I can explain it is that it was a don't feeling a no a stop, a, a pushback, but it wasn't a word. It wasn't anything that I auditory. It was more of a feeling of like, if you're, if I'm trying to make a left and I'm being forced to stay forward, kind of, that's, that's the best way I could explain it. Um, and eventually, and I really only snuck out about 10 minutes early. Um, and, and because I went through the whole trouble of moving my motorcycle because I usually would park up front close to the entrance. And if I start up my motorcycle 10 minutes early, everyone's going to be here when I was there. So at lunch, I moved my bike or I went to lunch, but I basically moved my bike closer to the exit. So that way I would be able to walk around, sneak out to the bike, get on, walk it out a little bit and push start it instead of starting it up and revving it so I could get out of there without being seen. Um, and then just I had a, my accident. Just a real quick question. Um, you have this feeling it's telling you not to listen to it. Every time previous to this, you've always tended to listen to that feeling. Why did you choose not to in this instance? That day, again, I don't remember what it was that I wanted to leave early for. Um, okay, so there's like something, yeah. There, there was something, like, it's so it, I probably, I mean, I know it that, that day I knew, yeah, I'm going to go hook up with this girl or I'm going to go see this movie <laughs> yeah. or whatever it was. I know, I know in that day, I'm leaving early because I want to go do X or try to go shower and change, whatever it was. But that day I know it was. Now that I think back on it, I can't think of what it was that um, I was trying to do, why I wanted to leave early. 
and why I didn't listen to the voice. This is my first time asking someone about something like this. So I'm going to do my very best to approach this sure. as sensitively as I can. Oh, I, 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 I have a, uh, a very cynical heart, so there's no way you're going to hurt my feelings. But for anyone out there, you know, I, right. I should give a warning. Like you should wear a condom on your heart because me personally, fuck your feelings. I don't care. But that's just me in general. Not, not do you listener directly, just in general. That's my kind of attitude. So if I'm fuck your feelings, don't worry about mine. A lot of the time when people go through accidents like this, they don't tend to remember anything obviously past a certain point because of shock, et cetera. What's the last thing you remember prior to the accident? Uh, the light that turned green just before the accident, which was probably a kilometer from where it happened. Uh, okay. um, and then the accident itself and then waking up to uh, a lady screaming over me, over, oh my God, he's dead. Oh my God, he's dead. So this is yeah right. This is on the uh, the roadside somewhere, and so you, is it is this like a quick flash sort of thing, and you're back out, or do you retain consciousness for a, a long period no, of time? I I blacked out from the moment of the incident. Right. Um, what I've been able to to piece together is uh, so it was a three lane road, two two three lanes road with a center median to be able to turn. This eighteen wheeler was trying to turn into. Uh, do delivery or whatever. Um, I had raced in front of the pack of the cars that were coming out of that green light uh, to make it to the next light because I already driven this road before. So I knew green light to, or light to light, I wouldn't make it if I do the speed limit. So I revved up to 45 and this truck, I guess, saw the cars coming and figured if he hurries up, he can get into the to his turn before the, the mass of cars shows up apparently he didn't see me so i'm doing 45 he's doing 20 ish 30 ish to try to get into that turn and i recall seeing or not it's not even a recollection it's more of uh, the diagram of what the police uh, report did showing that um other people said that i was basically in the far left lane and they saw me cut over to the right lane to get in front of the, the motorcycle or to get in front of the truck to pass it um and of course, I didn't go fast enough to go around him and hit him head on. But instead of being wedged or stuck against the hood of the or the grill of the truck, I when I realized it, people saw me kind of going back before the impact. So people say that they thought that I jumped off or back away from the uh, bike and ended up getting pinned by the bike itself. Because when the bike got hit, it caught my leg and then kind of slammed me like a rag doll. And that's why that one woman was screaming, uh, oh my God, he's dead. Because the way I flung off or like was, it was imagine like just somebody grabbing a ragdoll and just slamming it to the ground. Ooh. That's what they saw. Like my leg was a pin to the bike and just slammed to the ground. And of course, no helmet. So I guess I'm hard. I am hard headed, like my mother used to always say. But uh, the only thing that happened is I had a huge bruise and um, hand swole in my right hand. And I have a scar over my, one of my eyebrows. Wow. Hmm? I was expecting like a lot more than that. You you really Okay, that's no. You're very lucky in this situation to yes. just walk out with that. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
you blacked out, you wake up on the roadside. Do you then black out again and wake up in a hospital? What's, what's the next moment? No, once I woke back up, I was uh, uh, questioned by the EMTs or the ambulance right. and okay. uh, taken to the hospital. So I was conscious from then on. But in the interim from getting hit and then the woman screaming, that's when I had that weird near-death experience. And that's the, the one that kind of stands out. So when I black out, <clears throat> or from the light, from, from that green light that I was racing forward, of course, after that, I don't remember. This is just pieced together again from mm-hmm. eyewitness accounts, the police statement, all that other stuff. Um, what stands out is after that green light moving forward, everything kind of flashed. It wasn't white, but it was like a flash of color. Um, greenish, orangish, or orangish, some type of orange, yellowish color flashes. And then everything goes black. Um, I don't know if anyone who's here has listened or seen the movie Poltergeist, uh, but there was an old CRT television that was kind of far off and then zoomed in on. And uh, what I recall is kind of darkness, a bead of light, not a white light to go into or the shining light that everybody, or that most people here associate with. It was just kind of like that uh, the television light. And this is where the two things at once don't make sense. So in, in the same instance, I feel I traveled uh, the length of like two football, two uh, soccer pitches instantly, or about as fast as a second across that whole space. At the same time, I felt like everything was moving very slowly when I was traversing that space, getting up to that uh, light. Um, so it felt like I was floating my way there, but it also felt like it was in an instant. So it, it's in this uh, near-death experience, a lot of things don't make sense of how can two things be happening at the same time. And again, I don't know if it's memory and feeling at the same time, or one is a memory, one is a feeling, and that's why they're two different things. And I'm a little nervous talking about it. So it's, it's not that I need to stop. It's just kind of like uh, feelings coming back up again. Mm. <clears throat> so any hesitancy you hear is more of me trying to calm myself down to speak through it anyways in this uh as it zooms in i realize it looks like a television and i don't know if you've seen or i'm sure you've seen uh some type of movie or tv show where there's a mosaic of different videos going on at the same time Mm -hmm. and um this is one of those things again two things at once i see all these different videos and I feel like I'm focusing on one that's, uh, that's coming through the television as it's kind of zooming in. But at the same time, I feel that I was able to see every video and understand what was going on in all of them. Some of them were movies or television shows that I've seen. Others were reliving things that had happened in my life. So it's kind of like that you see your life flash before your eyes. Right. But instead of seeing different scenes... I'm able to see kind of like uh, a control room of a television control room of all these different videos of different times, but it's all condensed into one screen. Uh, <clears throat> and so seeing all these things, I'm realizing, oh, I was an asshole here. Oh shit. Someone was being nice to me there. So it, it's a range of feelings that I'm seeing, which is what I'm kind of reliving right now is that I'm seeing the bad and the good and everything in between 
that I've seen in my life and movies and TV shows that I enjoyed growing up, up until that point. And it was overwhelming. And then it went out, like the, the light went out. Mm-hmm. And then I look around and it was pitch black, but I could see. I, I could see in this blackness. Uh, not clearly, but I could make out, okay, there's a wall over here and behind me on her to my left and up to about to behind me is open. And then on this side, there's a cliff. So don't walk this way. And before I can make a decision as to what to do, that's when I hear the women screaming, oh my God, he's dead. And I stand back up. But again, I'm, I'm explaining this very shortly, but all those videos I saw, it felt like I was there about two weeks. It was like a consistent two weeks of time. Like if you were able to stay up for 24 hours for 14 days, that was a feeling I felt of watching all these videos that were going on. But at the same time, like I said, it felt like it was that instant. And when I hear that woman yelling at me, I realize it might've been five minutes because it was a time car stopping, someone getting out, a woman getting out and screaming, oh my God, he's dead a few feet from me. When I did my episode on um, life after death with uh, shout out to Josh Leonard, we spoke about briefly about time and how in situations such as near-death experiences, you know, there's that constant argument of how time truly works. You know, there's the idea that time works in the linear sense, how we experience time. And then of course, how you're explaining it here, where it's like in, in our time frame, it's only five minutes, but in that other kind of, let's say spiritual realm, it's like, it could last as it could be years, maybe, you know what I mean? It's, and I think that's, the, be- the best lesson, I don't know, This and this again, this is just me theorizing. I think maybe it's just telling us that the way we think we understand time is not how time really works. <laughs> it's the best way I could probably surmise that. Um, but walk, walk me through, you wake up, this is an overwhelming experience. You hear this woman shouting, are you... Because you're 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 aware of what's going on, but like, walk me through what's what's going through your mind at this at this moment in time as you're kind of getting up and sort of finding your bearings again. And when I get up, um, my immediate thought or feeling was I, I at that moment I don't recall what happened that that blackness that that mm-hmm. um, image. It was later that night, the next week or two that I'm having dreams it's kind of like i'm reliving what i saw when i was out oh and um so in the moment i remember the only thing i remember is the the shooting from where i was at to the television like i I remember that when i woke up but it was kind of um a distant memory by the time i was i stood up like it was like it it felt like it happened years ago but i remember that it was something that happened so i I remember the television thing or the, the way the light came up in that room or that dark room as weeks went by, I was remembering more and more that would, that had happened in when I was out or had my experience, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in that moment, when I got back up, I was more concerned with the bike, the motorcycle, in that, you know, hey, fuck, I really put a lot of money and effort into this bike. How much am I going to get out of it? Like, so my right. concern was gone. Like, hey, okay, got my finger. Oh, shit. Oh, my hand hurts. Okay, ow, this hurts. My right hand's fine, elbows. 
neck, whatever. I'm good. All right. right. My body's fine. I can go back to work tomorrow. Fuck my bike. What am I going to do now? Um, Did you go to work the next day? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then, of course, I tell everybody had heard about a motorcycle accident. Everyone thought it was me. Um, And then I show up to work. It's like, oh, okay, cool. You know, it wasn't you. It was like, well, it wasn't me. What? Oh, that motorcycle accident yesterday. Well, where? And then, yeah, on this street over here by the, oh, yeah, that was me. What? You're here? Yeah. And then for, and because of that accident, that's when I started wearing a motorcycle helmet, a small one, a little novelty helmet. <laughs> so, and as more motorcycle accidents I had, then I started going from novelty helmet to half helmet to three quarter helmet. Now I wear a full face helmet. So, hold up. You, you've had several motorcycle yeah. accidents. So, okay. Yeah, so, people say, why would you still ride a bike? Because why am I going to be afraid of something I enjoy? If you could, I could die, you could die from a heart attack before the show is over. Either of us could. So why worry and have a fear of doing something you like because you could die? We all know or should know that we are going to die. And then this is more of something I want to touch up at the end of like, or how you would say, how did this shape me? I understand very well that I could die at any moment. Hmm. why live life being in fear of that enjoy your life today enjoy your life every day i completely agree i just don't mm-hmm. understand why you wouldn't put safety first after nearly passing away <laughs> well see that's why i started evolving the helmets because okay fine let me wear a full face helmet and be a little bit more protected plus i'm older now and it'll hurt if i get into an accident so i i want to be as well protected as i can whenever i do get hurt because i'm sure it'll happen again Bring it more to the paranormal side of things for a second. Do you think you're being tested? Maybe this is like mm. you're just able to handle a lot more maybe than the average human being as far as these uh, things are concerned. I don't, I don't think it's more than the average person. Okay. Um, I believe uh, a saying that a lot of uh, Christians um, or people who follow the Abrahamic God, God of uh, the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims, that... God or Allah or Yahweh only gives you what you can handle. Now, most people would cave under the pressure and like, oh, fuck it, this life sucks and either commit suicide or have a mental break. But it's still, I think, within us to push through and do better for ourselves. And I think it's um, some of it has to do with nature and nurture. You know, with it, I think it's within our nature to be able to handle anything. We just don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like not living to the standard of living that we have of easy. You know, if we had um, nuclear warfare in the next weeks or months to come because of what's going on in the world, I don't think a lot of people could survive the uh, nuclear apocalypse after this or this dystopian future that we might have because we're just not prepared to be able to live off the land like we, our ancestors did. But I think we're capable to, if we decide, yes, we're going to, I want to live, I'm going to do this versus, oh my God, this is too hard and I'm triggered. Well, then yeah, let's get rid of those. Um, and not targeting anyone, not uh, diminishing anyone, but I think it's within us to move past things that trigger us to be better versus trying to find someone else to take care of us because we were triggered. And I think this all comes from that first first time I nearly died and resolving that I have to take care of myself and most people not getting to that level in their life in general 
And if they do, it's usually later in life. And even then, it's still kind of hard for them to push through and do that. Well, this sort of raises a, an important point, specifically talking about triggers and stuff. And as I understand, the way that that works typically is it's some trauma, trauma that you've dealt with in your life. And sometimes <clears throat> something can kind of, well, yeah, trigger it, put you, say, back in that moment or trigger the feeling that you had when you experienced that that thing. One thing I wanted to ask you about with all these experiences that you've had, like, have you had like some sort of counseling to work through that and how you, you deal with that? And if so, how has that helped? And how are you able to kind of talk freely about these things without it kind of being traumatic for you? Um, huh. Yes, I had therapy for it. Or not this specifically for for the traumas or the death. It's more of um, so when I found out or realized I was an intercourse addict, it was kind of hard to hard pill to swallow because in my mind, sex addicts well, those are just celebrities and actors and uh, rich people that say this so that way their wives don't leave them and they don't have to pay alimony and they get a second chance because they got caught cheating. That was my thought, even though I was fully an intercourse addict from 98 through 2011. <clears throat> and so when I came to this realization, I tried different types of therapies. I tried individual uh, with the therapist and couldn't find myself to open up to them because I felt like there was, I lacked respect towards them because even though they were clinicians, that's what I saw them. They were clinicians. They couldn't really understand what I was feeling, what I was doing, what I was going through. I tried Sex Addicts Anonymous and at least a few group therapies that I went to there seemed like the addicts there were just trying to white knuckle it. Oh man, I didn't have sex today. So I'm, I'm doing really good. And, you know, I, I was thinking about doing this thing and this thing and that thing with this girl, but I realized that my sponsor would be disappointed with me and you guys would be disappointed with me, blah, 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 blah. And it was just um, not addressing their issues. It was just more trying to live it up to the expectations of others. And then if they did fall and have sex or do something, um, my feeling there was like, well, shit, at least I'm not as fucked up as this guy. And so I didn't have respect for them in that sense because I didn't feel like I was growing or being better. And, and so then I started doing group therapy with Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christian-based one, and which was technically where I found out that I was a, or actually it's where I found out that I was a intercourse addict, but I didn't want to go there because I was there for different reasons, not, not nefarious reasons, just not to... I didn't have any problems. I was just there to support a friend. And while I was supporting my friend, I said, oh yeah, I'm a porn addict because there's nowhere else for me to go kind of sit around in and not respecting the guys there because they're into porn or uh, seeing sex workers. And I'm like, I don't have that problem. I can get laid. So you guys are lame. That was my thought. And so I didn't want to have to come in. Oh, hey guys, actually I am a sex addict. This is my problem. So it was a little bit of embarrassment there until I came back and started going through that therapy. Once I went through there, I was able to realize some of the uh, issues, past traumas, and all these other things that kind of made me into who I was. It made it easy for me to deal with my emotions and feelings by using sex to feel better about it. So having that foundation of understanding, okay, this is how I should deal with things instead of trying to go out and get laid just to feel better for the moment, um, that helped me realize and be able to delve deeper into doing some regression therapy and doing other things like that to find out deeper meanings and issues that have happened in my life. 
And it sort of helped me cope with my wife who passed away being a widow or being a widower. And it's, um, it's been about five years now, but in that moment, when it, when it happened, I fell into bad old, old habits again. And within the first 24 hours of her passing away, I'd hooked up with four different women and kind of fell down that path for about a month or two and then felt guilty because I felt like I was cheating on my wife and try to do alcoholism because, okay, hey, I, I don't want to deal or face my issues right now. I don't want to uh, use these tools that I have in my past or use these tools that I understand and know I should use because I want to wallow and I want to be miserable and try to be an alcoholic. But again, by that point, I was in my uh, mid to late thirties and I don't recover from hangovers as easily. So I got tired of that after about a month and then finally, okay, let me deal with my shit and be a better person and be, get back on the right path about two or three months after my wife passed away. So with that is how I was able to uh, better handle all these things that have happened in my life because otherwise, or the way I had dealt with it was just using sex and either sex or repression, which are two terrible things, coping mechanisms to use to deal with your everyday life. Sex addiction has always kind of fascinated me in the sense that it's, it differs greatly from say alcohol addiction or drug addiction in the sense that I suppose, you know, with drinking, you try to stop drinking and you, you know, you, you whatever you go teetotal, you, you don't have that anymore. That's something that I did at the beginning of this year. It's, you know, it's, but that's the thing. Like, it's not just that you change habits, you change different things. And I imagine there's a lot of similarities there as far as how you approach it and how you, you work through it. But, the difference is obviously as you then move forward and you you have other partners and stuff like you, you want to be able to to do to do that with them you want to share your love with these people so i guess my question is like how, how did you learn sort of healthy ways to do that where you didn't sort of fall back into that pattern again yeah that, that's uh that's probably the most common one is like wait you know drugs and alcohol yeah you just stop but you can't stop having sex because either you're a monk or you have a sexless relationship and that's not going to last. Um, and so with me to be able to deal with that, originally I was kind of stumbling through it at first because I couldn't figure out um, what my sobriety looked like. And okay. eventually the way I handle it now is I don't have sex with someone unless I see a potential for a relationship. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't mean a monogamous relationship with one individual person because, because of all uh, the things I've done throughout my intercourse addiction, I am not complacent with just one partner. With my wife, we practice ethical non-monogamy, which is essentially just boils down to hall passes. And we had some rules with that. Mine was, I don't want any other males in our bedroom. She didn't want me to have any other female partners that were her teammates in roller derby. If they were past teammates, fine. If they were retired, fine, but not currently participating teammates. <clears throat> and so that was easy to follow. Um, and then now with uh, being single again or widowed, it is <clears throat> difficult to find a partner that's willing to have that again, to, to meet all the things that I like in a person, because that, that's the problem with most relationships nowadays anyways, is finding someone that you get along with, finding someone that can put up with your shit, and then finding someone that's uh, comparable on level of sex that, you know, are willing to do the things that you want to do at a base level, you know? There, I know some couples that um, anal sex is completely off the board. 
she's not interested, he's not interested, that works well for them. But for me, I need at least all three holes open. If, that, if any one of them is a no, or if one of them is like, oh, well, maybe on an anniversary, if you treat me right the month before, like, no, that's not going to work. From day one that we start having sex, I have to have access to everything there because there's other things I might want to build on. Um, so finding a partner that's going to match all the things I want for me will be difficult. And even when, if I do find that, um, I do like variety. I do like other women. And my wife understood that sex is just sex. It's not, um, it doesn't have to always be the emotional connection that she and I had together. It could be just stress relief that we have when we have other people. Um, usually when we're traveling out of town because we were used to, um, at least once a day. And so several days of a dry spell kind of sucks because she would go to conventions uh, for work or I would go out of town for my own type of work that was different. Um, so we, we had that understanding. So being able to have that again now is difficult. So it's better to have, for me, multiple partners that I can see basically being long-term friends with benefits with two or three different women versus trying to have one night stands and like, ah, eh, no, that doesn't work out. So for me, it's more of, for my sobriety to have one or two or three or four women that I have a emotional connection with, that I have a relationship that I can stand being around them. They can stand being around me and having sex with them. It's amazing because the whole idea of polyamory and um, polysexual relationships was is such a new concept to me. I've sort of learned over it through the years and, um, I never quite got it, but like I feel like in an instance like this, it makes perfect sense. Do you know what I mean? It's it, it, it's it's all down to the type of person you are, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. You know, it's it's just standard relationships, isn't it? It's just another example of a relationship you can have, and you make it work. And I suppose like any good relationship, it's the communication angle is key. You know, mm-hmm. just keeping it. Do you, do you have any advice, maybe, uh, for people that are sort of trying to make polyamory or polysexual relationships work? Being honest and again, communication, like those are, those are the two most important things. Um, and being able to be honest with your partner to the point without trying to hurt their feelings. I'm not saying, oh, you're bad at sex, so I want another girlfriend. No, no, no. Tell me, hey, look, you don't like anal. Um, I have this past partner that does. I don't want to date her. I don't want her to be my girlfriend. I just want to have anal sex with her. Whatever the conversation is, or the girlfriend could be like, hey, look, um, you know, I've never been with a black guy. I want to try it, but I don't want to break up and then do it, this, that, or the other. I want to give this a try and having that conversation and feeling out what's going to be comfortable. Um, and with my wife, we, at first, uh, when we were dating, because we weren't married at that point, that conversation kind of came up. She was like, well, I want to see guys. I was like, at that point, I wasn't ready to do that with her. And I was like, look, if that's what it takes for us to continue to have threesomes, because we've had a couple that we kind of stumbled into. Um, if that's what it takes, I'm fine with never having another woman and just me and you. So it kind of backfired on her because she thought, oh, I'm going to keep giving him threesomes and then I'll get to have guys on the side or whatever. Um, and so being able to have that conversation, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm cool with not having any ever. So then we had to amend it and change it as it went along and how our relationship grew. And I think it's difficult to do that once you have a relationship started, because most people nowadays um, are kind of dead set on monogamy. Mm. But if you start talking about this while you're dating or getting to know the other person, before you say, you're my boyfriend, you're my girlfriend, before you have that monogamous commitment, 
you are honest, hey, this is what I'd like to try. This is the type of relationship that I would like to have. Then they might be more open to it. It might be, okay, I can see this probably working or something like that working, not the way you want it, but maybe an amended version and then something that works for me. And then eventually we'll both be happy together or together with others. Um, for example, me, I know I can't do a polyamory relationship. I know I can't have three or four girlfriends that have their own boyfriends or their own husbands or their own girlfriends. It's, it's not something I want. I'm very selfish. I want them for myself. And so, and then my idea also had, oh, hell, maybe if I had sister wives or had, you know, four or five women that live with me, I'm like, no, I don't want to live with them all the time. I just want to see them when I want to see them or when they want to see me. So that's why I know what works for me can work if I put in the effort to having that communication with whoever I'm talking to or whoever I'm dating or whoever I'm hooking up with versus putting that on a, on a um, dating app. Cause that's super problematic because then you'll have people coming out of the woodwork that you're not trying to attract. So this is one of those things you have to do in person. I think. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on dating apps? Cause obviously you come from a time, sorry, you come from a time making it sound so ancient. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the world before all of this mm -hmm. and you know, you didn't have problem meeting people these apps come along it's for you know and and people have i can see positives and negatives to it but i think there's largely more negatives than there are positives because let's face it it's a very superficial thing you know there are people seriously trying to make it work and find someone that has the same interests etc but a lot of it does just come down to are they sexually attractive or not that's kind of the mm -hmm. for most of it so certainly brands like tinder and stuff it that seems to be the case but what are your thoughts on it so I don't have problems with dating apps to, to use to hook up. Like for me, I use them as hookup tools and okay. I would use them whenever I would travel. So um, I didn't realize it was part of the algorithm. I just realized that whenever I would travel um, when I was married and even before then, because I did use uh, the internet to hook up back in the day, way back. So back during AOL, because the internet was so new, everyone was so excited to make an offline friend or an internet friend. So you would meet up in person so that you would always have that automatic connection of wanting to meet someone from the internet in person. And so once you have that rapport that you're already meeting, oh, well, they have the internet, they have money, so they're safe, I'm guessing, or whatever the logic that women used back then or girls, because I was a teenager then, um, it would be easy to hook up with a girl. All you had to do is get them, to, once you got them to agree to meet up with you, you could get it in, or at least I could. And <laughs> I had made a game of it. Yeah. <laughs> And so it wasn't that difficult. And I played a game with another guy. And if you want to hear, just listen to my episode, Body Count. I don't want to go into too much detail. But essentially, my body count shot up because of that game, because of being able to be online. And then, of course, dating apps were actually dating websites. And through there, you know, like uh, eHarmony, Match, OkCupid, okay mm -hmm. Plenty of Fish, when you had to spell the whole thing out, just POF. Um, you know, you'd send messages and eventually those messages could be forwarded as SMS messages to your phone, but they would come in kind of like tweets because you could only get 120 characters at a time. So they'd get, you know, you'd have like 17 messages in one message that they sent online and it was, it was the whole thing. So I'm comfortable with using it. I was comfortable with using dating apps and dating websites, but now it's more difficult because like you mentioned, it's more for about sex and women unfortunately have kind of the mistaken idea that if I can hook up with a guy that's an eight, then I should only hook up with eights because clearly I'm hot enough to date an eight, but dating and sex are two different things, especially for guys. And you can probably attest to this is that, yeah, you might hook up with an ugly girl, 
because you've been through a dry spell. You might hook up with the unattractive, overweight, whatever, because you know, you've had a, a one month, three month, a year long dry spell and you would go through that. And now this woman thinks that, you know, oh yeah, Christian Reeve is my standard. This long haired, attractive young man is the type of guy I can get, even though she kind of looks like Rebel Wilson before she lost all the weight. And now she won't talk to any guys that are overweight or in her league that are also fours or fives or whatever you want to rate that type of physical appearance. And so women have the standard of only eights, nines, and tens can talk to me, even though they're not that level. So that's where the disparity that we see in uh, studies and such about um, 20% of the guys get 80% of the women because they will uh, step down and women are punching up out of their league. And so I would do the same thing is whenever I would travel, I would change my zip code to wherever I was going to. And because I changed my zip code, it would seem like I was a new person in the area and I would get put to the front of the matches or whatever. This is something I learned uh, in the past year or so, the way the algorithm kind of looks. So I was kind of cheating because I was traveling and I would have uh, matches and hook up with fairly, attract, fairly attractive women to hot women uh, when I got to Newtown. And of course, and they would find out oh, I'm just here in town for a couple of weeks. So like, I told you, I'm not going to, I'm just here visiting. I'm got family here, whatever I was in town for. And so dating apps aren't that difficult to use if you know how to manipulate them. But I personally prefer to meet in person. I don't like dating apps because most of the expectation is either just sex or they, they being the unattractive women think that they're in my league and want me to. Uh, jump through hoops just to get them to, or get me to get them to go out on a date. And like, I'm not going to take you to an expensive dinner just because you replied to my message and, or just because you messaged me because you were not someone that I would walk around in public with. So let's move it forward um, and mm-hmm. sort of go back to near death experiences again for a second. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of experiences being at knife point and gunpoint even. Um, I just wanted to kind of touch on this for a little bit and walk through your experiences being in, in, in those experiences of, of being at knife point and gunpoint. Um, those are also middle school and high school. And again, there's those all stem for me chasing girls or uh, pissing off somebody's brother, sister or brother, boyfriend or ex or whatever, or even a guy that thought that this was his girl, even though he never talked to her, uh, had a couple of those. Um, the knife point, I wasn't really scared of, um, but I knew it could have gone bad in those situations. The gun being held at gunpoint the first few times uh, was scary because it wasn't so much that I was afraid of them being capable of killing me. I was afraid of them having a twitchy trigger finger or getting nervous and accidentally shooting me and killing me or shooting me and paralyzing me. Actually, that was, that's my biggest fear is being uh, paralyzed, you know, quadriplegic. Um, and so <clears throat> that was my fear initially. And then eventually after the fourth or fifth time that I was held at gunpoint, and most of these were just threats to, hey, stop talking to this girl. Hey, stop doing this, stop doing that. Because it was more to get me to change my behavior, essentially. And um, <laughs> so, so uh, I laugh because one of the guys, we ended up becoming friends because I taught him how to talk to girls and pick up girls because he was a very shy gangster he was a very um it, it was weird it, it was one of those weird so that's why i, I chuckled because i remembered it and so 
then later I found out that a lot of these guys were carrying empty guns just to try to scare me because they uh, were just angry at me, essentially. Um, but again, the first few times being held at knife point or gunpoint is scary. It's like, oh, I'm not this super tough macho guy that isn't afraid of anything, especially as a teenager. Yeah, teenager. I was afraid, but I didn't show it. I made sure that I didn't let them see it, that uh, whatever. And, and again, that also ties into me thinking that I was going to be dead by the age of 20. Like I wasn't going to be old enough, live to be old enough to drink legally in the U.S. Um, and so me having that mentality made it easy for me to not care if I live or died or not expect to live for so long. So if I got shot in a mugging, which I was only mugged twice, the other ones were just again threats, um, then I would had it in my mind that fine, if they're going to, I would prefer, I would prefer to be held at knife point because at least then I could fight them off of it and then try to stab them too. was kind of like my mentality. But the gun point is just like, well, shit, what am I going to do? I can't reach and grab and pull the gun away faster than they can pull the trigger. And even if I do put my hands on it, I could accidentally get them to shoot me. So, um, yeah, there was that fear initially, but over time it just, okay, now what was, was more of the, situation that I had it going on or how I handled it. Considering it happened multiple times, I'm guessing you are a good, well, a good, able to persuade people not to do this, let's say. Good, <laughs> <laughs> good persuasion. Yes. I, um, uh, I don't know if it's, I wouldn't call it a gift to gab. I would say okay. more of just being able to read people well, uh, be, because I'm an only child. <clears throat> um, I would entertain myself by not creating worlds, but just creating personas of how people would live their lives. So uh, even today, I, in my mind, occasionally, whenever I'm bored, because uh, I try to not to use my phone or have my phone whenever I'm waiting for something, I try to force myself to think and do other things. Um, I imagine what my life would have been like at different points in my life. There's a, a version of me that could have gone to Yale there's a version of me that would have stayed in the military, done a 20 year career. So different things like that. I wonder, okay, where would I be at now? Would I be happy? What would be going on? Would I still be married? Would I be divorced? Would I, you know, all these little different things and how my kids would behave and um, kind of imagining these worlds that I could essentially turn into books, but writing that out in my head to keep myself entertained. So being able to see different people's perspectives and realize People don't see things always the same way or the way I experience them. So biases, essentially, trying to remove my biases and being able to um, put myself in other people's shoes makes it easier for me to, going back to being an um, intercourse addict, is being able to be a, essentially a master manipulator, convincing people, married women for 20 plus years or 15 plus years to sleep with me just because you know it, it might be a good idea or it might be fun. And being able to use small um, motivators in people, the, call, the term is called, but essentially figuring out what makes them tick, whether they're fear motivated or green motivated um, is what most people boil down to and using that to manipulate them to do something that I wanted to do or just try something different. Um, getting a girl or a married woman online to give me a stripped show on Zoom or on Discord and then realizing, okay, she won't do that. And then play with her like, oh, hey, didn't you say we're going to get a new dress? Um, have you tried it on? Can you send me a picture? 
and she'll go try it on for me because it's not as sexual as she, she thinks it is for me or have her rearrange the furniture in her room. So being able to read people and um, just figure out how to use them because it really just boils down to me learning how to be able to use people and exploit them pre uh, to 2012, 2015-ish because in that area, there's still kind of some gray area where I would still use people. But since then, I realize it's better to get people to do things or not even get them to do things is give them enough reason to want to do something for me in exchange as um, something mutual and growing as a relationship versus just using the person. And you you can get so much more, reap so much more benefits and rewards by sharing and being giving than trying to manipulate, twist, and use people. Where was this? Where did you develop the ability to do this? Was this something that you just kind of developed as you got older? Was it maybe something you learned from your parents or through life? No, this was... I don't know if I observed it, but I know I started doing it in since uh, middle school uh, when I was chasing after these girls. And I realized that the worst thing they could do is say no. Um, I know as I got older, and even now, I still kind of uh, learn and study psychology, but I don't just Google search, oh, hey, how do I get people to do this? I'll go to scholar.google.com and read theses on just random topics and I don't read the whole thesis. I'll just read the uh, abstract, read the conclusion, and then read the footnotes and citations, um, figure out who the authors are, and then uh, do a YouTube search for them. And then that way I can get a layman's version of what their whole talk is about or who they are about the the authors. So I kind of get a um, doctorate level education on anything I want by using YouTube, but I have to go and kind of do a little bit of research. And so... That's one aspect of how I hone that ability to understand people better in general. But as a kid, I think I kind of took that whole um, uh, honey and vinegar to get, uh, what is it? Uh, you can get uh, shit, flies, honey, vinegar, even though technically flies are attracted to shit, but still um, the, the, the saying of, you, know, you can get people to do what you want if you're being nice to them, but you can still get people to do what you want if you find out their motivations. And it wasn't that difficult because what's the word? I don't want to seem or sound like I'm, I'm smarter than the average person. I just was bored with school because in school, I was able to retain information well. So I was bored in class until it was time to take a test. And then I was usually the first or second person done with the test, turn it in and still get all A's and B's, high marks. And so how else am I going to entertain myself? Because I was um, offered to be um, jumped a grade level four different times uh, because, you know, I was just uh, at the top of my class without even trying because I was bored. So I entertained myself by, Manipulating others too, not just for my benefit, but just for my own amusement of basically being a shit starter. You know, hey, Susie, did you hear that Maria is talking to your boyfriend, John? Yeah, I heard them talking the other day. And just leaving that alone. And then eventually it turned into a fight and then Maria would break up with John or um, Susie would break up with uh, John and Maria and John would start talking. Let's see, I told you, you want to get back at him? Why don't you suck my dick? You know, it, it's, it, it's just fucking, for me, it's easy. I understand some people can't even imagine doing that, 
And yes, it is wrong. I understand now as an adult, it was wrong. But as a kid, you know, it's, it was like me fucking with a magnifying glass and ants. That's the way I saw other people is just toys to be used because I was a poor kid. I didn't have that many toys. I had seven toys roughly growing up. And the two major ones, a Nintendo and Super Nintendo, were gifts from my father for Christmas and my birthday. So everything else was either hand-me-downs or stuff I got from a thrift store. So how else am I supposed to entertain myself? What was the point where that kind of changed for you and you stopped? You started to kind of realize like, hey, maybe this is wrong. Maybe I need to change this. Uh, 2011, 2012, when I started doing uh, my therapy for my intercourse addiction, realizing that I was using people for short-term gains and I should try to help people for stronger relationships. And even that, that realization took time. Like I realized, okay, this is wrong. And then, oh, I can get more uh, reciprocity by being nice. Like I can be nice in the short term to get something right now. But if I'm consistently nice, I'll get a greater relationship, a greater reward by doing that. And so that was roughly about a year period from 2011 to 2012 that I was able to, oh, okay, don't be an asshole. You can get more. And I can get lasting relationships too, because even going back to just being an intercourse addict, using women and subjugating them in the moment, yeah, they do it for me because they enjoyed it then and there. But over time, me consistently just treating them as an object or using them as an object, they got tired of it and wanted to be seen as a person. And so I would only get to play with them for a month to maybe a year max versus relationships that I started in about 2010 or 2012-ish that I can still see them now because when we have sex, yes, I use them and subjugate them. But outside of sex, I I treat them as a person and do what I can for them and have reciprocity there that is uh, goodwill and good nature. And so now we can still do vile things in the bedroom or in public, wherever we are, but it's um, still a relationship versus just one or two, three, or maybe a dozen times. Man, I've got to put like a ton of disclaimers, 18 plus everything <laughs> on this. <laughs> you did give me a warning at first. No. no, it's good. It's good. It's um, it's foreign territory for me. Base. I can't not be fascinated. I think for me, I, I just, I love to learn about people and their stories. And, you know, I think we both share a lot of like human psychology and the way that works and stuff. And it's, it's just, man, I could ask you questions all day, <laughs> but um, I'm going to sort of try and wind it down a little bit now. Uh-huh. And um, so I've got a few final questions for you, but one thing I want to do is to kind of put a bow on the near death experiences. Uh-huh. Now, I asked you a little bit at the beginning of the hour, but with everything that you've learned over the years, both your experiences, you know, outside of near-death experiences and also with near-death experiences, how has this shaped the way that you see life, the way that you live your life and everything in between? Now I live more for experience isn't for me and i get that's kind of a a, kind of a millennial thing that oh yeah i'm not gonna i'm gonna go have my trip and experience whatever um but i like to have experiences and connections uh because sure i could make x a year and you know have all these toys at home but what good does it do me or anyone else having all these toys and having all these fancy quote-unquote things 
Um, and at the same time, realizing, like I said earlier, is that I could die at any moment, but knowing it, knowing that I could die. So instead of putting off, oh yeah, I'm going to work out starting tomorrow or starting next week, or I'm going to um, fix the gutters, you know, it's simple menial things. But the sooner you get those things done, the, the menial tasks, then the sooner you can start enjoying and doing other things you want to do. You're like, okay, once I get done with the gutters, now I can go uh, to the park and meet a girl and find a soulmate. But you're never going to get those better things if you don't get, you know, you don't uh, tend house, if you don't take care of your yourself first. And so my path started from realizing I could die. Okay, make, be, make me be a better me. So that way when I go out in the world, I'm more entertaining. I'm more um, someone people want to be around and want to spend time with and want more of my time. So if I'm just an average, oh yeah, I nearly died. Well, what are you going to talk about? What's the point of this, this episode? But having more depth and more breadth makes for a more interesting conversation. And not just me specifically, I'm just everyone in general, that more people want to be around you and you can have more interactive relationships. So that for me is the most important thing, learning from nearly dying so many times being a widower and really realizing that we could die at any moment because even though I had that in my mind, yeah, I could die. I thought, yeah, me and my wife, we're going to be together for another 40 years, 40, 50 years, however long, you know, the average life expectancy is. And realizing we only had four years and 11 days together, well, shit, you know, now I need to live more of my life rather than just exist in my life. Wow. Just, yeah, I'm just very, really inspired by this episode. Thank you so much. A um, couple of final questions for you. What's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, <laughs> um, from my father was, women are born with a pussy. They don't want another one. <laughs> and oh so... Oh, my God. <laughs> that's Jeez. a trigger warning. But... It works in, on multiple levels, not just in getting women, but being a man, being able to stand up for yourself, you get respect from other men, you get respect from other peers, and you don't get uh, treated as a pushover. Nobody even tries to um, punk me, for, for lack of a better term. You know, Sure, people play jokes on me, but those are close friends that we know we can fuck around with each other versus um, starting in a new job or being in a new place and someone trying to figure out the pecking order and the pecking order is i'm not below you i am here this is where my my position is and you're either going to meet me but you're not going to be above me or making fun of me or ridiculing me or doing whatever you want like i am not um a pushover i can be kind cordial and nice but um that has been a great advice that i got from my father when i was 12 or 13. of course at the time i didn't really get it you know i kind of got it but didn't get it and i thought it was just specific to women but that's been Applicable, applicable for my entire life. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? Uh, hmm, that is that is a tough question. Um, biggest life lesson: you can't do it by yourself. Um, you can be alone, I'm, and as an only child, I'm comfortable being alone. But you can't get through life by yourself. You need others, and that's where it's important to have um, healthy, strong relationships, not just romantic, but healthy, strong relationships with everyone you interact with, knowing that you can be reliable, knowing that 
they can be reliable and building on those uh, relationships of trust that, uh, you know, maybe one day down the road when Christian Reeves uh, podcast becomes, you know, the next Joe Rogan, you know, he goes, Hey, you know, check out my friend Gallo. He's, you know, you should check him out, whatever. He's kind of funny, you know? So, so those kind of things versus having to come to you 10 years down the road and make it transactional. Hey, could you plug me on your podcast? I'll give you 10 grand, you know, that, um, or vice versa, you know, Christian Reeve, Hey, fuck, I had fun talking on an, an episode that isn't my niche and getting to be more expressive. Um, yeah, sure, man. Fuck it. Come on. I'll have you on once a month and you know, whatever, you know, that that's the type of thing that, um, and it, it kind of sounds manipulative or that I'm being, um, whatever, uh, predacious and thinking of, Oh yeah, I can use this person in the future, but no, okay, no. maybe, maybe I'll quit. Maybe I'll quit doing podcasting next month or this at the end of this season, this year, you know, eh, fuck it, there's too much work. I'd rather do something else, but whatever it is, you know, there, there's still that, um, friendship or, or not animosity, um, being amicable enough to have a conversation offline, you know, for random things or pick each other's brains or whatever comes up and, um, have it enjoyable, you know? So yeah, the most important life lesson or biggest life lesson is I can be good to everyone. I completely agree with what you're saying there. Like I know some, some people are like, no, 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 you should just do things out of the goodness of your heart and everything. And like, I, I agree. And, you know, I've done things in my life, like say volunteer work, help people for nothing, not expected anything back. Sure. That's great. That's good. But the reality is like, you do hope that if you are in a position people will help you back and stuff and i think it's sometimes you expect that and you don't get it back and it's you know it's a tough lesson to learn but that's just how it is sometimes but there will be people that yeah will you know help you out and stuff and you know be it friends family acquaintances you know in business i I think about this a lot i do like i think like let's say years down the road for example on this show i've i've had people I've reached out to uh, people I know who then became made a success of themselves and then inevitably started acting differently towards me once that happened and at first I was annoyed now I just see it as okay I'm gonna remember that I'm gonna keep hold of that yeah their character that that defines or that shows you more of their character and that's something that I don't want to do anymore it's not it's not just that but like I, I think about that and I think like if I would ever potentially one day make it and they say like this show becomes a success i'll remember that and if they reach out i probably will ignore their messages to be honest (laughs) (laughs) i'm just being honest i mean you know you ignored mine (laughs) but no but in all seriousness like I, i i totally agree with you i think there's we do need each other we're better together than we are apart and that's just how it is i think but yeah um wow really really grateful for your time go a massive massive pleasure final question for you do you have any upcoming pro- uh, projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners um no just i, I have my own podcast that's more geared towards uh, dating relationship and life advice with the kink twist uh the kink twist isn't anything dirty or, or crazy it's just that kinksters in general we have um, open and honest conversations before we do anything sexual. And so if everyone approached life that way of being honest, instead of hoping someone understands your innuendo or someone figures out what you really mean, because you don't want to come out front and ask for it. Um, you know, just 
being direct and honest could save us all a lot of time. Um, as far as projects, uh, nothing really. Uh, nothing sticks out. But, um, you know, yeah, just if anything you want to complain to me about um, anything I've said because I hurt your feelings or you <laughs> want to expand or have deeper questions, you can find me easily at sucia.xyz. You can text me, you can call me, you can email me or find my socials. I will always answer them and, you know, I don't get offended. So if I have offended you, I don't apologize, but maybe I can help you see my point of view. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on this show. It's been a real pleasure. And, it's been fun. Oh, man, I've, I've totally enjoyed it. I, it's, to be honest, I, I needed this. It was a reminder of why I do this show. So thank you. And to the listeners of the Christian Reed podcast, as always, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.